We are living through huge food price increases. That's going to lead to food riots. That is already leading to famines in many parts of the world. And in a way, that's on us. Much of the world has spent the last two years modeling how different policies will reduce COVID cases or deaths with little or no regard to how they damage humanity. Today I sit down with a man whose job is to actually quantify these harms. Paul Freitersch is a visiting professor of well-being economics at the London School of Economics and co-author of The Great Covid Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next. There's kind of a madness that's crept into the population, looking for other crazy things to do. We are, as it were, in a madly stampeding herd. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Janja Kellek. Dr. Paul Freitersch, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to see you, <laughs> Jan Jekawek. Oh, wonderful pronunciation. Um, you're the author of The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. So this isn't the typical book you'll see on the bookshelf about COVID. When did you first realize that something was going very wrong? Um, it would have been early March 2020. Uh, up until then, in January and February, I sort of went along with what was happening in the media and what we were told by the medical authorities we had to do. I basically didn't give it much thought. Right? I thought, well, who knows, maybe this is a terrible disease like the plague, in which case, indeed, uh, it's going to be all hens on deck and we're going to do draconian stuff because we would anyway if there's that kind of lethality. Um, but looking at the early data, I wasn't too worried, uh, and neither were my students or most of my societies, of which I thought of the Netherlands and England, because my dad was Dutch and my mother was English, and I was living in London at the time. Um, but then suddenly my students started to be very, very anxious, and the government was clearly moving towards lockdowns. And I was sort of like, what is going on here, right? Um, and then I started to look into the data myself. Um, and so I had been a professor of health economics for 10 years in Brisbane, and I knew how to read the models, and I knew where to look for the viral and immunology st stuff. So I could read the Diamond Princess uh, data, I could read the data uh, that was coming out of Wuhan about how the virus was really only affecting uh, the elderly, and even then, only a small minority of them. Um, and then I used, as it were, the skills that I'd acquired in London in the previous five years to do with well-being. Um, which is that I developed a methodology to count uh, lots of different effects in different dimensions. And I could apply that to what was coming in terms of the disruption. So I could evaluate, well, okay, how many lives are we going to lose in the future because of the enormous crash in the economy that is now being mandated by the various closures. I could calculate what kind of ballpark figure the mental health crisis would look like. Right? Um, and then I laid that out against the best estimates as to what these lockdowns were supposed to do. And it was like comparing a mountain with a mole heap. And the mountain was the cost. And the mole heap was, you know, the benefits in the best state of the world. So the costs are going to be a mountain. The benefits are best a mole heap. What the hell is going on? Something weird is going on, right? Uh, and then you start to look at crowd psychology. You start to see it in terms of a panic. You start to see it in terms of institutional overreach, the medical authorities running away with their own power lust, uh, and you start to look differently at the modelers and what everybody else is doing. So that's sort of when I really thought, okay, something is amiss, and, and I sort of went into a highly analytical mode, you know. I sort of thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to research this, right? I'm going to get on, up to the bottom as, as to what is going on and what we should do next. So already in March 2020, I started writing pieces on, well, how should we reform our institutions? Um, I was then still stupid. I was then still believing, look, we're, we're going to see that this was stupid in a month's time, right? I mean, I was sort of convinced that the craziness would only last a week or two, and then it would become clear to people what they were doing to their own kids, to the elderly, to the lonely, to their economies, to their jobs. And so I thought it would be a blip. But well, two weeks did into two years. There's been many crush, uh, curves crushed, but it wasn't the COVID one, was it? It was more, as it were, the healthiness of our lives, the quality of our social interactions, our ability to travel, our freedoms. Lots of things got crushed, but not COVID. And so early on, when you said you were, uh, you know, quote unquote, stupid, um, did you reach out to your peers, you know, and uh, professors in economy and other mm -hmm. related disciplines? What were they saying? Uh, totally. So one of the first indications that something was amiss was by an Australian colleague of mine. I can name him, I think, which is Robert Gregory. He's a very smart, switched on guy who 
was in China um, in January and February, I believe. And he emailed me, he said, look, this is going to be very big, right? And he too couldn't really see what the fuss was about because he'd also looked at the data and said, look, compared to the cost, this, is, this doesn't look worth all the effort, right? Um, and then, of course, I, I reached out to Gigi Foster, a longtime co-author of mine, also on this particular book, but also to some of my students and to fellow professors as to, can you believe what is happening, right? Uh, and most of those I contacted uh, were sort of like-minded, that, oh no, this is, this is weird stuff that is going on, right? Uh, and then we formed a bit of a group, and of course there were those who were sort of fully going along with the madness, that was a, a nasty surprise. Um, but we then started analysing it as a group and exchanging information and helping each other with media appearances and this and that, because it was, it was clear that we thought we were one of the very many academic groups, sort of, you know, gearing up into anti-mode, if you like, right? Uh, but that wasn't the case. There weren't all that many. But they were there internationally. So then you find your international brothers and sisters, as it were. And there's been a, a huge fraternizing amongst the academic community that has seen this as a problem. And we sort each other out. And so here we are now at the Brownstone Institute, you know, people from four or five continents, I believe. Well, for many people that might be watching this, right, for, for a long time, especially early on, for me, frankly, we were just simply unaware that this sort of discussion was being had, mm -hmm. right? We only heard a very different side of the story. So how did you square that? Um, yeah, the, the reaction of the media was a huge surprise to me at the beginning, right? I, I thought there would be much more diversity. And in some places in the world, like uh, in Australia, frankly, uh, there were media outlets like The Australian with Michael Crichton, but also with uh, Sky, who had their, uh, their own reporter who was very much against the lockdowns of what was happening. So you, you did have, as it were, green shoots of reason, if you like, right? Uh, but the vast majority of the media, including in Britain, including in the US, including in much of Europe, were indeed highly complicit, were a very propagandist style, and were more than happy to go with sort of full fear. Um, but I think it, it became clear to us scientists on the other side via the Great Barrington Declaration that, in fact, there were many, many more of us and we're just keeping silent. Mm. So that declaration, you know, by Martin Kordoch, Bakhtaria and Sunetra Gupta uh, reached close to a million scientists over the world, right? Uh, and you know, sort of, you know, interested intellectuals who signed up to what was a much more sensible approach to the pandemic, which is look after those most vulnerable, let the rest get on with their lives, right? Um, because life has to be lived. The mere fact that something like, well, you probably know the numbers better, 700 to 800,000 people signed up within a few weeks was a real signal, okay, we are not alone. Mm -hmm. We are not alone, right? I mean, there must be particular reasons as to why so few voices are heard but in terms of petitions by top scientists around the world, this is unprecedented. You, you won't find this for climate change, you know. Uh, you, you won't find this for lots of other things that are contested by special interests, right? And so if you started to look carefully within every country, there were groups of doctors speaking out very bravely, often losing their livelihoods because they were doing that. There were policemen who were speaking out because they didn't want to beat up demonstrations. There were teachers speaking up because they wanted to teach their kids rather than force them to be at home and forego uh, all that learning and all that social interaction. There were mothers speaking out, there were lawyers speaking out, court cases were happening everywhere. And so there really was a lot of resistance activity in the world. But it was just the mainstream media who wasn't reporting on it. But there was that whole undergrowth of resistance, if you like, right, which should have been the mainstream, but was deplatformed, we would now say, right? And so when that became clear to me, and as it were, the, the fellow resistance fighters, you no longer feel alone. You know that there are many, many millions around the world who are putting their livelihood at stake to sort of stand up in their own communities and do something. So in that sense, there's been a resurrection of civil society, and that's been very heartening to watch. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so how did you channel your resistance impulse here exactly? I mean, other than writing this book, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so effectively, and this was in, in collaboration again with Gigi Foster, but also with other academics from around the world, um, you decide to do what you're best at, right? And so I looked at to, well, what are my skills and how can I throw them into the balance, right? I am 
not a great media personality, I'm not a politician, I'm not a great organizer of, you know, setting up an institute like Jeffrey Tucker. Um, I don't run a school, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do analytics, right? And so I am a well-being cost-benefit guy. So that's what I did and wrote methodological books. I'm also very much a system thinker who spent a long time thinking about how institutions function and how we can, we can improve them. And I've worked for many governments around the world, helping them in, in various policy areas. And so I could write about that. You know, how does the bureaucracy function? What went wrong? What could be done better? How does, as it were, you know, the, this kind of aspect of the world work. I knew about health, so I knew how to read the models. I knew what was wrong with that and how science functioned. So, as it were, I saw that as my task, right? Uh, putting into perspective all the various aspects of our socioeconomic system and really explaining to the rest of the resistance what the hell is going on, but also where our hope lies, you know, where the weak points are in terms of the well, you might say the elites that have now arisen, but also the forces that have now arisen. You know, where should we look to in the future for a brighter future? And so I thought, okay, that's what I'm good at, so I'll do that. And then you team up with others who are good at other stuff. Well, so we're going to talk about all this, especially your well-being methodology. I find that incredibly fascinating, and I just frankly wasn't aware of it for a long time. But it seems obvious once, once I kind mm -hmm. of understood a little more about it. Before we go there, um, you know, right now we have, you know, these big multilateral organizations of a very variety of sorts meeting as we're mm -hmm. as we're interviewing right now at the World Health Assembly. Um, there's been all sorts of policy over the last two years, which let's say a, a number of people in this resistance would categorize or describe as a power grab. Mm -hmm. So how do you view that in your from your you know sort of looking at the world, the institutions and how they mm -hmm. function lens here? Um, I definitely think there has been a power grab, but I tend to think of that as the power grab of lots of sort of small mafiosi-like corporations almost, right? They, they're each looking how to play the field, how to get the most out of it for themselves, and they're subject to all kinds of influences. So, you know, the, the WHO will not be in one room with 10,000 other important players and strategizing how they're going to grab power from the world population the coming two years, because you can never get that kind of conspiracy off um, the field. But what you can do as a WHO is sort of move with your sponsors, your major backers, and put out a plan how you get more power. And what you can do as a WHO, if let's say uh, an institution like the European Union or particular countries are looking to siphon off their own responsibility for the failures by making it a World Health Organization failure, right? So as it were, you know, doubling down on your mistake by pretending uh, this is now world policy, which is effectively what's going on now, right? Then you're going to go, oh yeah, we'd like more power, please. No, of course, we all did the right thing, right? You all, as it were, make that trade, right? Uh, we get to be responsible with more power. So I tend to see this very much more as a sort of opportunistic power grabbing. Mm. And in a way, one way to think of that is, is as if these are all separate firms and they're all playing in a market. And in this market, the money comes from governments. It can come from Bill Gates foundations or other sort of very rich individuals. It can come from departments. It can come from think tanks, but it can also come from consumers. Um, and they're essentially shopping around for the narratives that they can tell by which they get more money, power and prestige, right? Uh, and there are winners and losers in that, right? Uh, we haven't heard much of the FAO in this period because they haven't got very happy messages, right? The airline industry hasn't been getting more powerful because they've lost lots of position. The non-internet firms have lost a lot of power too because, well, the internet firms have grabbed it. So it, it, it is kind of a, a winner and loser landscape. And, well, the winners have run riot, as they will, as they will, right? In that sense, I, I don't see evil people. I see opportunistic people. Mm. And humans are all a little bit opportunistic, and they were in the fortunate or unfortunate position to be able to grab more power in particular ways, and they went for it. And I hate to say it, most of us would have done the same. So I, I tend to blame the system, and I tend to look for systemic solutions rather than saying these are evil people, we need to get rid of them and replace them by others. Because I always believe the others will be the same in the same circumstances. So I look to change the institutions. And this is very much an American revolutionary thinking, right? They, they didn't trust anybody. They were afraid that any one among them would be the king. And so they wanted the system in which no one needed to be trusted, right? It's very much a separation of power idea. And I'm very similar minded, right? We, we should not confuse 
good governance with good people, right? Good governance has to do with good institution, which everybody is slightly mistrusted all the time. <laughs> and that's where we should go to, right? It, it's become too centralized, too much power concentrated in too few hands, and that needs to change. Well, that was actually something very fascinating for me to discover. They actually created it to be inefficient, mm -hmm. very much in the vein of what you're totally. what you're talking about. Totally. But yeah. it, it, we're going towards that kind of time again. I mean, in a way, the last 15 years and 50 years, we've sort of been lulled into the fantasy that, you know, everything is possible. There are no limits. Government can be good or the business leaders can be good. And we're such a nice species. We're going to solve all problems, you know the yes we can mentality of sort of world politics right and the UN is a dream factory which brings out that kind of thing as well you know we're going to be all things to all people in all generations right and to a certain extent that's not how they fought at the time of the enlightenment and the American revolutionaries they'd just come off the back of many many centuries of autocratic rule by princes and kings who had their own interest in mind not that of the population and, you know, these American revolutionaries were merchants and some were slave owners and they knew full well the darkness of the human soul or at least what it's capable of. And so they didn't expect anything different. They didn't want their institutions to be based on good people will do good things, you know, which is sort of something seen as very stupid at that time. You know, you don't, you don't trust, right? You, you sort of trust competition between people. And so, yes, you build inefficiencies, you build in competing powers, you build in power rotation, all kinds of mechanism, right? Uh, the separation of the states, right? And lots and lots and lots of things. And we're going back to that kind of time now again, whereby we, we have to become honest once again about what humanity is. And we didn't need to be honest for a long time. We could be lulled into the fairy tale that, you know, we're, we're good people if only we give everybody a chance. And now we've got to deal with the reality that we're an opportunistic species and we've got to set up our institutions such that that opportunism doesn't destroy us all. Well, so what, how do you explain, and I suspect you've started to explain it already, but I'm not sure I see it entirely. How do you explain, let's call it, you use this term, elite, you know, mm -hmm. elite media, elite bureaucracy, you know, mm -hmm. what some people call the deep state or the administrative state, these mm -hmm. sort of huge bureaucracies that have been developed both in the US and around the world that hold a lot of power. Um, politicians and, you know, a lot of this kind of functioning in a kind of lockstep to create this perception that mm -hmm. actually there's only one way to view this. And if you don't view it this way, there's mm -hmm. something probably wrong with you, right? Which mm -hmm. is where you started out, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, I. I see that a little bit as the outcome of a, of a longer standing process, if you like, right? That, I mean, the media has become more and more connected over the world, not just the last two years, but that's been true for the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, and so the stories that we surround ourselves have become more and more similar, uh, more and more similar entertainment as well. And within that kind of environment, the politicians start to sing from the same hymn sheet, right? Uh, and so they start to have very similar opinions. And so within that kind of environment, if a huge shock comes that, you know, it sort of has an emotional contagion to it, you know, the, the panic and the fear that spread via social media first, and then in mainstream media channels, first in China, then East Asia, then Europe, then the US, then Latin America, then it, it sort of, all the politicians fell in line because they thought, or at least I think, that they thought that if they didn't, they'd be pushed aside. And so out of sheer survival mode, they sort of saw the stampeding herd and thought, well, I'm the leader now. If I don't go along with this herd, I won't be the leader next. So I'm gonna go along with this, right? I'm gonna be the herd leader, right? Uh, and once you do that, once you sort of start stampeding as well, well, these are opportunistic politicians. They start looking around, who can I give the favorable contracts? People come to them, uh, we, shouldn't we test everybody via my company, right? Shouldn't we give everybody vaccines via my company and their kids via my company and mask and all the rest of it, right? So you're, you're then in a new environment where lots of things are changing. And uh, I, I don't know if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, but as Littlefinger said, you know, chaos is a ladder. And we've definitely see chaos being a ladder, right? All these little opportunities to make more money and to grab more power. And so we've seen that kind of free for all, right? Whereby there's been lots and lots of opportunity grabbing by thousands of people all over the world. 
Uh, and so it's kind of that, right? So in the stampeding herd, the, as it were, the smart, savvy, politically oriented operators uh, have sort of outfoxed the rest of us. And then, you know, the people who are, hey, wait a second, yourself, you know, mm -hmm. some others, Great Barrington folks, um, it, there's a huge cost potentially to, to taking that position, especially publicly, right? Yes, uh, I think for myself, I haven't sort of had much negative reactions on this, but I've not been as much in the limelight as, of course, the free readers of the uh, Great Parenton Declaration who have, you know, suffered a lot personally. Um, and, of course, my call for Gigi Foster, who sort of was really out there in Australia and sort of, you know, been hounded for a while. But I, I know and support many people in many uh, countries which have sort of been really at the spear point of this, particularly in the media, and by God, has their life been tough, right? And up and down the Western world, lots of doctors got fired for speaking out or for giving their patients sensible information about the risk and benefits of both early treatments and of the vaccines. You know, that was suddenly considered misinformation, whereas up until 2020, that was the legal duty of every doctor to do, right? But now it's become implicitly mandated to lie and break the law. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I very much sympathize with all the people who sort of dare to speak out and have suffered for it. And that's happened to many of my friends and still, to a large degree, continues to be the case now. But uh, I do sense the tide is turning, at least in the U.S. Well, the thing is that, you know, for example, right, traditionally, this doctor-patient relationship was sacrosanct, right? There would be some guidance from a body like the CDC or the mm -hmm. FDA, depending on what type of issue, right? Um, but, the, but the doctor was responsible, mm -hmm. right? And it was very clear and it wasn't expected to follow some sort of overarching gui you know, guidance that is the same for every patient because not every patient is the same. These things are obvious. However, suddenly they became unobvious in these large institutions. And this is what makes everyone suspicious, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Right? Are suddenly dictating all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right, whether they be in the academia, whether they be, you know, in government, whether they be in these, you know, multilateral institutions, uh, all all sorts of places. It's that this concentration of power seems to have, I don't know, is shifted, or this is the logical conclusion of this process that you've been watching. You tell yeah, me, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think more the latter, right? So there's definitely been a power grab of the CDC, obviously, famously, but. If you look at what's happened in the last 20 years, it, it's already the case that doctors more and more had to deal, for instance, with hospital administrators. You know, uh, they were tapped on the shoulders by ethics boards. They were sent memos by ministries and the DCD and the National Health Institute. And so more and more they were living in an environment in which they were supposed to do lots and lots and lots of stuff, right? and a huge amount of regulation. That's even worse, of course, in countries outside of the US. Uh, and so uh, they had already been reduced to puppets to a certain degree, right? Mm. Um, as I was talking to with Charney in the, in the car, um, a medic will now sort of be kind of a lackey for the first 15 years of this sort of professional existence, you know, three years of just doing exams, sort of doing as you're told, being a good boy and a good girl, and then you go into residency for another three years and an apprenticeship system, and then you sort of start out in a junior practice, and you're basically close to your 40s before you're actually starting to, you know, be truly supposed to be responsible, right? Mm. So after being such a follower, and so, as it were, treated like, like, like a minion who should just follow orders, well, it's not so strange to think you'll just keep doing that. Right? So in a way, this kind of creeping bureaucratization, top-down, uh, let's mandate every aspect, that's, that's been creeping in for the last 20, 30 years, right? And not just in the U.S., this is true throughout the Western world, right? That, uh, yeah, bureaucracies, including in private companies, you know, have just been growing. Right? More and more centralization. So this is not just true of government. This is also true of large corporations. You know, the, the number of memos that the CEO will send round as to the corporate social responsibility or the latest ethical thing that they've done or the mission statement has grown just exponentially. Right? And so, well, as we say in our book, we, we now wade through a molasses of bullshit every day. Right? <laughs> How many forms did you fill out this morning? Right? That kind of thing. You know? Do you even know what you consented to when you downloaded an app? Right? You couldn't possibly know 
because that would have required a whole week to just read it, right? <laughs> so that sort of thing, right? We, we, we now go along with it because it's become too complicated. It's just easier to comply. It's a kind of a legalistic society that's emerged, I guess. And there's this, you know, incredibly litigious society in America mm -hmm. and safety. I, 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 you know, learned the term, I think, safetyist in the mm -hmm. last however many years where, you know, let's just let's just play the safe. Let's just play it safe because mm -hmm. who knows what will happen? Who knows who will sue us? Who knows what kind of trouble we could have? And this is at least, mm -hmm. you know, we can we can be safe. But you argue that this kind of inordinate focus on safety actually can create, you know, huge harms. Totally. Yeah, totally. And, and the Achilles heel of safetyism has always been that it's never been about the proportionality of the risks and the benefits, right? Safetyism has always been about a threat that's visible now. And I have to be seen to do something about it. But there are two questions there. Do you actually do something about it? And what harm are you doing whilst you're doing something about it? Right? And the doctor's oath, the Hippocratic oath, is do no harm. And so safetyism in that sense is just illegal, right? I mean, if you don't ask the question, what harm am I doing? You are violating your oath, right? And this proportionality principle is also in the Nuremberg Code after the Second World War because the German Nazis, of course, also abused public health laws and said, oh, everything is for the health of the population. We're going to excise the unhealthy element, right? Um, and so the proportionality thing is in public health laws. And not asking the proportionality question, not trying at least some semblance of a cost-benefit analysis or some sort of notion of what harm am I doing, and a reasonable view of what benefit you're having. If you're not openly stating that, then, you know, in, as far as I have been able to ascertain, and I take my cue from lawyers there, we're looking at illegal actions, right? But in a sense, those illegal actions have become normal the last 20 years because it's all been about appearing to be safe but truly safe, and we've seen that with the lockdowns, right? So, so take the initial cry, we've got to flatten the curve. Well, A, there was not sort of, well, what is going to get crushed if we flatten this curve? You know, what are we giving up? Which is the cost question. But even the benefit question wasn't asked. It's sort of, and what good is flattening the curve actually? It was, oh, well, then the hospitals won't be over um, oversubscribed. But hospitals are regularly oversubscribed. Well, that sort of is a yearly occurrence. It's not the end of the world, right? Then people are helped in the community, in the family. You have nurses coming around. And so what would actually be the cost if some people can't go to hospital, just as they wouldn't every year, right? It's sort of a peak season. And that question wasn't asked. It wasn't answered. It was just presumed uh, almost like a totem of faith that, oh, this is going to have huge benefits if we don't overload the hospitals. Why? Right? I'm the economist, right? How much? What is this going to cost us, right? And by not asking and answering that question, again, the safetyism, you know, we've got to be seen to do something. That's an abrogation of duty. It's illegal as far as I can tell. But it's also, it's, there's a cruelty in that. There is a, a disregard for everything one is then destroying, right? If it's kind of like, oh, I must be seen to do the right thing on this, without looking at, well, whom am I actually killing via my actions? You know, whose lives am I destroying? Well, that's the banality of evil. You know, that's exactly what Hannah Arendt talked about. That is lulling yourself into, as it were, permission to destroy other people's lives, you know, for just this tiny little obsession over there. And, yeah, that is just, you know, very, very bad. And <laughs> we, we've got to oppose that. And we've got to think of better systems in which the proportionality question is baked in. You know, I can't help but think, uh, still in New York City, as we speak right mm -hmm. now, toddlers, two to four-year-olds, are required to be masked in school. It's the only group, mm. right? And, you know, you think to yourself, knowing the data and so forth, how is it possible that this is the policy? I know, right? isn't it awful? And, and I mean, it, it it just, it's, it's unbelievable to think about. But how, well... Possibly because there's this is my theory that it's sort of deference to the loudest, most histrionic person mm -hmm. or a few people that are deathly afraid that their children will die, mm -hmm. and so you blanket apply a policy for everybody based on that. There's no benefit, and to proportionality, to <laughs> yeah, use your yeah. term, is is yeah, yeah, you know, know off the charts terrible, right? Certainly, I I, I totally agree with the proportionality. Yes. Um, 
What the reasoning is, I don't know an awful lot about New York nowadays, but I know that they've been batshit crazy the last two years. But I see that very much as a herd phenomenon, right? I mean, once the herd is stampeding, you know, it sort of tramples, doesn't look at where it tramples, but it, it, it can sort of, you know, in subtle cues, suddenly direct it into another direction, right? When they can, talk, can transform into a war band, you know, and suddenly you find yourself in another war, either with Ukraine or with Russia or with climate change or whatever it is that then becomes the obsession of that particular day, the obsession du jour. Uh, and so this, this notion, yeah, kids, small kids should be marked, which, uh, masked, which is, of course, horrible, right? That becomes like this totem again. It, it really is like we're back in the Middle Ages, you know, uh, uh, put a cross on them and, you know, the devil won't get to them. Uh, or, you know, uh, where is the garlic, you know, for when the vampires are coming? Is that kind of mentality, right? It's kind of, you know, in their heads have come this notion that masks are a good thing and protect people from stuff, right? Instead of just, you know, constricting their airways, trapping the bacteria between their mouth and that mask, calling, uh, causing sores, making it difficult for these toddlers to start to recognize faces, basically disrupting their cognitive process for their whole lives, you know, skills they will never learn and never get back, right? Instead of looking at that, it's just that, you know, there's sort of blind staring, this obsession, which can be shared by a whole group. And yes, histrionics has to do with that, but it also has to be permission for that, right? I mean, if somebody starts shouting out in, in the streets, uh, you know, we, we should all commit suicide, I don't think everybody will commit suicide, right? There's always some limit somewhere, right? So it's got to fit in with the previous narrative. It's sort of mm. got to be in the direction in which the herd had been stampeding and would like to stampede a little bit further because, you know, it's nice to stampede, you know? Hmm. No, I mean... I I just find this particularly disturbing because, you know, most of these restrictions have been taken away. There's talk now I'm hearing of get, getting some of them back because there's a surge. But, you know, from what we know about coronaviruses, coronaviruses surge, right? It's going to happen. There's no, there's no zero COVID reality. So let's talk about that, actually. So zero COVID orthodoxy. <laughs> I just had an interview, the, la the last one before, before we were chatting today. Was with uh, Michael Sanger, a gentleman whose theory thesis and there's has a lot of very compelling elements that the Chinese regime instituting this unprecedented mass lockdown policy and celebrating its great success, mm -hmm. you know, basically influenced mm -hmm. everybody else to pick the same policy, which nobody mm -hmm. previously would really mm -hmm. agree to, except in some very specific circumstances, island nations and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. but, so. What's, what is your take? Is it, so there, there, there's certainly a herd here. I, yeah, I can yeah, see yeah, that. Yeah. I know you're going to say that. <laughs> yes. But, no. but, but where does the zero COVID idea come from? And how does this issue of proportionality fit in there? Yeah. So I, I see the zero COVID mentality very much as, as almost the logical outgrowth of thinking of a disease as something that is alien to humanity, something that is not not you can excise it's like it's dirty it's like we are contaminated and you know life can never be good unless we're totally decontaminated right so the the the, the nazis had what was called the fremdkörper ideology which is you know there's something alien to the body must be excised in their case you know gypsies jews socialists and all kinds of other groups they didn't like right but this thinking of zero COVID is that same thinking, is a sort of, you know, that's dirty. That's basically the devil is there, right? Um, we've got to oust the devil no matter what, at all costs, right? So it's a very sort of primitive medieval mindset, particularly if you think of what a long ancestry humanity has with viruses and bacteria, and that we are, as it were, bags of viruses and bacteria. We've got lots of them, right? Everywhere. We live in a soup of them, right? And so to excise all of that is is also exercising lots of... It, it would kill you. It would kill us. It would kill it would, you. We need yeah. them. We yeah. need them. So it's, yeah. it's, it's batshit crazy thinking, right? But it's very popular because it, it fits into our stories of good and evil, and that's evil, and we must get rid of it, right? Um, now, on the Chinese stories, I, I did research on China for many years to sort of get a little bit on top of how they think, what their mentality is. So my reading is, is subtly different from that of Michael Singer, but... 90% the same, right? I mean, my reading is that within China, there was first, as it were, a social media outburst, right? Uh, outside of the authorities, uh, in Wuhan, you know, the doctor spoke up and, you know, this sort of captured the local imagination there. 
And the Chinese authorities try to suppress that because, you know, they don't like panics. This is a disruption of the social order they find very important. But they couldn't contain it. And so they decided, well, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So then they were going all macho, we're going to fix this, you know, we're going to be all draconian. Um, and then, of course, they had the problem that towards the rest of the world, this looked like crazy because nobody had ever done something like this. And according to all the blueprints and the WHO itself, the damage of doing this would far outweigh any benefits. And so you shouldn't do any of this, right? And so then, of course, the Chinese were, in my opinion, too, um, you know, very instrumental in propagandizing lockdowns, right? And they're very successful at that, right? There are other reasons as well as to why it took off in the media, but I do believe the Chinese authorities will have quite consciously tried to help that along. And that is not so much to do any damage to us. And that's where I differ from Michael saying, I don't think he quite understands the Chinese authorities' mindset or the constraints that they're under, right? They don't care what we do for our sake or to damage us or to help us. That's not how they think. They care what we do because that tells their population whether the leaders have done the right thing or not. So if we all follow the mistake of the Chinese authorities, it stops looking like a mistake to the Chinese population. Mm. They then think, oh, the Americans did it, the Europeans did it, must have been the right thing, and we led the world, right? And then they're all proud of their leaders. That was the object, right? The object is internal propaganda. And I think the West doesn't yet conceive of, of Chinese politics in that way. You know, we think that they're strategic and that they're busy. How can we plot the damage of the West and this and that? That's not really how they think. They're much more busy with themselves than they are with us, right? And so I, I, I think that's, that's a mistake in thinking about China that uh, Michael Singer has there. Uh, but the rest, I, I buy, you know, yes, they propagandize and there would have been funds to the WHO and in all kinds of ways will they have tried to uh, influence our media narratives. Uh, but it, it makes a huge difference whether or not they do that for internal propaganda or external damage. Because if it's all to damage us, then of course they wouldn't second time round be stupid enough to you know, destroy their biggest economic hub, Shanghai, and to lock down their own country. And also to, by the way, suffer a huge reduction in births, which has happened in China, right? I mean, in 2020, something like, you know, 30-40% less births inside the cities. That's a huge loss, right? I mean, they really are ha hampered themselves. That's not something you do to harm an en enemy. That's something, that, something that occurs because you've been stupid yourself, right? You're hurting right. your own population, right? So, no, why do they do that? Well, you know, the Chinese leaders convince themselves of their own propaganda, right? It's kind of, oh, we did the right thing. We've got to show we're tough again, you know? We've got to save the Chinese population. And the fact that they're actually hurting their own population well, they'll try to bury that because that's happened many times in the last hundred years. The Chinese leaders have tried to bury a disaster. That happened in the Great, um, um, the great Leap Forward where, you know, 10 to 30 million people probably died and they basically buried that from their own population and said it was bad harvest due to bad weather. Um, and, of course, also the Cultural Revolution. They sort of increasingly are trying to bury... Um, the losses of that. So it, it sort of fits their own politics that they've done this, right? This is not some deep stratagem towards us, right? Nobody's that smart. And it's also not what they care about, right? So zero COVID basically sweeps the world with a few exceptions, right? And these are the policies that are instituted. And you're getting a ton of data coming in from all sorts of places. And you're, presumably, you're plugging them into your wellness system. I don't know if you have a, you know, an AI, you know, working with your with your parameters or something like this. But so, so what really happened? What is what was the cost when you look back now? Mm -hmm. um, well, the cost was very similar to the cost anticipated and openly predicted in publications right at the start of the pandemic. So. Um, I mean, there are dozens of areas in which the costs were, but let me mention five big ones, right? One cost, and very obvious we're becoming more aware of, is to children. Right? If you don't have children at school, then their skills are going to deteriorate, particularly if they don't have parents who self-educate their kids with laptops at home. There's their parents who don't care that much, or they just, you know, are working hard to make ends meet, and all the kids have is the television and the internet. Then those kids are not going to accumulate skills, but they're also going to lose social abilities. They're not going to interact with other kids because they're stuck at home. They're not supposed to be with other kids because that's dangerous. And that's going to cost them emotional development. It is going to cost them social development, uh, social intelligence. 
And that'll cost them for the rest of their lives, right? And we've, in that sense, scarred a whole generation of kids. And they're not going to get these skills back. You know, this is a done thing now, right? Uh, if it were easy to get back, we, we'd have done our education different. Then, you know, oh, we, they needed less years of education, right? So we, we know that we've scarred them for life, a whole generation of American children, of European children, and it's even worse in parts of Africa and Asia, where sometimes schools have been disrupted for almost two years. And, you know, some of the girls are never going to come back to school. They've been married off. You know, it's a totally different tra trajectory that they're now on. Um, so that's one big cost. And we could see that coming because we could see in the very early data already in um, April 2020 coming out of the anxiety of children, their inability to learn then. Reports were coming out of various educational institutions in mid-2020. Uh, some international organizations were, were sort of, you know, ringing the alarm bells. We knew this in mid-2020. A disaster is happening with the education of our children, particularly in the poor parts of this world. Uh, due to the school disruptions, not due to COVID, due to policy, right? Um, then another disaster that has happened is, is, as it were, the mental health effects of all the lonely people, of the people who, who cannot, as it were, sit at home and, you know, have a wonderful home environment with five others, but who have, let's say, an abusive husband or no one else there, right? And they're not allowed to see their mother and their father in retirement homes because it's been locked away, right? And who, who hence go demented very quickly and die much quicker, right? Uh, and who are not allowed to date and they can't marry and they can't travel, right? Well, their lives have been blighted by almost two years of social isolation. And we are not a species meant to be alone, you know? We are very much a social animal. We need to be touched. We need to be around people. We, we need to feel their presence around us, joke, banter, you know, have sex, all kinds of things. You know, that's whom we are. That, that is how we live. We live with and via other people. And disrupting that has horrible effects on mental health. So, you know, roughly speaking, in the UK, we found that mental health problems almost doubled. Right? So depression rates from 15 to 30 percent. We find similar things in the US. Uh, and that is an enormous loss. Right? So in terms, of, in terms of the quality of life, you should think that the quality of life may be reduced by something like 10 percent for the population on average. Now you think, ah, oh, 10% is not so much. But think of that, if you take 10% away of the whole population, that's like taking one year away of one in 10, right? So in a million people, you are taking away 100,000 years of life. Well, how much is a COVID death? Is one COVID death 100,000 years of life? I don't think so, nobody lives that long, right? So on average, a COVID death probably means that we lose three years of life. So 100,000 years of life is then the same as almost 30,000 COVID deaths in terms of equivalence, in terms of quality of life versus length of life, right? Um, and so there's nowhere near 30,000 people dying on a million after just one year, right? We're now two years in and we're much more looking at two to 3,000 per million, right? And so the ballpark figures don't stack up. You know, the loss just in terms of mental health alone, right, far outweighs, you know, in terms of this sort of, you know, accumulator what life is about, uh, even the, the wildest guesses as to the benefits of these lockdowns in terms of reduced COVID deaths. Um, then there are other big ticket items on the cost ledger, right? There have, of course, been the businesses, the, 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 the people forced to stay at home and be unemployed. Um, and that has meant that government debt has racked up. Uh, and government debt is very important because it's got to be paid off. And the reality is, as we know from Angus Deaton's book, you know, the Nobel Prize winner in his Deaths of Despair, that if you reduce that, you reduce the welfare in the future, you reduce government education, you reduce health care again, you're going to cause a lot more mental health problems and a lot more deaths in the future via less health services, uh, a less glowing economy. Um, then you could possibly have saved this time round. Right? Government debt, in that sense, is, is sort of hugely important. Uh, and we have numbers on that, right? So, for instance, in the UK, uh, how does UK, as it were, government money get converted into lives? Well, the money is used to buy medicine, right? And when the UK government buys medicine, they have a rule and thumb in mind, right? For one year of life, they're effectively willing to pay something like £25,000, which is, uh, roughly speaking, let's say $35,000, right? That's how much the UK government spends to buy one year of life, right? 
$35,000. Well, $35,000 for one year of life. So for three years of life, we're up to a bit over $100,000. And hence, what a COVID death would, would be equivalent as what they in normal times would be willing to pay for it. Right? When we work out how much the UK government's actually paid to maybe uh, avert a COVID deaths, we're into the tens of millions of dollars, right? Whereas normally, they'd only be willing to pay 100,000, right? Just based on the fact that they could buy medicine, which saves other people those same three years of life that they're otherwise foregoing, right? And so we're able to basically, hence, use ballpark numbers to say how important government debt is going to be. Uh, and hence, we can really now say the disruption that's going to come in the coming decades. Now, there is an alternative way that society can pay. It can pay back the government debt or it can have hyperinflation, right? which is roughly what we're going through now, right? By so much money printing, we're basically impoverishing everybody via inflation and disrupting the whole economic system. Uh, and we've also learned in the past that hyperinflation is, is in a way even worse, right? It's so disruptive. It's so disruptive to uh, the economy, but also people's social lives, uh, to as it were, you know, all the investments that have been made in skills, that that will cost us even more probably. So one way or another, we're in for a horrid time. And that's entirely due to the government policies of the last two years. We didn't need to have that horrible time, but it's coming. And we are living it, right? We are living through huge food price increases. And we pretend it's Ukraine, but the food prices were already up, something like 50 to 70% above the low level of 2019. And that was due to supply disruptions. That was due to the COVID restrictions, you know, to disruption of international trade, to sort of stopping lots of people moving and stopping the agricultural system from performing optimally. Uh, that's going to lead to food riots. That is already leading to famines in many parts of the world. And in a way, that's on us too, right? I mean, the effect that we have had on the rest of the world via the trade disruption and the other disruptions is horrendous as well, right? And Sunetta Gupta has sort of written about that very nicely, right? Um, and so there's that, there's that, the mental health. There's lots of other things we could talk about, right? The disruption of the health system itself, you know, the notion that doctors and hospitals are only there for COVID means, well, they're not there for cancer. They're not there for diabetes. They're not there for treating dementia or preventing dementia, right? They're, they're basically hence uh, taken away from other things. And to give a trite example, which I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, IVF services were stopped because they were deemed inessential. Well, if you're otherwise going to be born, IVF services are as essential as they come, you know. Uh, and, and it matters rather a lot. 3% of, of births in the UK are normally IVF. Well, it's 3% less by government diktat, right? And so that's an enormous loss. Uh, it's a loss to the unborn baby, obviously. But it's also a loss to the, to the, the would-be mothers, the would-be fathers. You know, their lives have been blighted as well. Just by a stroke of a bureaucratic pen. We are flattening the curve and you shall not be a mother or a father because that's unimportant. I mean, the cruelty inherent in that is, is just awful, isn't it? I've given you the five biggest ticket items. We also talked about unemployment, but those are the biggest ticket item from a, a well-being perspective. So the well-being perspective is that you sort of decide to count in what we think of as a currency, but we think of as the pursuit of happiness, as you know, the preamble of the American Constitution, but we take it seriously as well-being scholars. So we say, look, we really are going to think of government as being there to have as many happy years lived by its population. That then becomes the goal function, that becomes the reason for government, right? Which is the enlightenment reason for government. It is, you know, on Capitol Hill, you can see that in various of these inscriptions. That's how the American revolutionaries somewhat thought about it, you know, uh, Jefferson and all that. Uh, and we just take it seriously, right? So we actually measure you know, the well-being that a, a person has, that a population has. We derive that from the opinions that people themselves have of their lives. So we don't say their lives are good, no. We take their opinions about their lives, almost as if it's a democratic vote. So we ask them, how satisfied are you of your life overall these days? So your opinion about your life, whether you're satisfied with it, and then we take that as the measure, okay, how do you evaluate the life that you have? And then we work out, well, what life did you have? And what disruptions have there been to that? How good is your health? Have you got married this year? What are your career prospects? Everything that sort of, you know, may matter to you in life. And we have an enormous literature. We have something like 200,000 studies on this since the 1930s, which tell us pretty well how important various aspects of life are for your uh, enjoyment, as it were, with your own life. And that then allows us to go to the future, which is, well, if we take this away from you, 
how much will that cost you? If we, if, if, if we prevent you from being married, we know that it'll cost you about one point on that zero to 10 scale, right? For one year, that's roughly, we call that one well-be, right? That's roughly what it'll cost. We know if you, you get depressed, it will cost you, you know, three to four well-be over a period of two years, right? And then you'll recover. We've got all kinds of rules of thumb as to how important, important parts of life are. Um, and so we were able to say beforehand, oh, don't do the social isolation. That's a really, really costly thing to do. And we brought out reports and papers and we tried to be in the newspaper, you know, all to no avail, of course, you know, but we tried to fight the good fight, that sort of thing, right? Um, and sort of in hindsight, we, we can use these lessons to sort of uh, build systems to prevent a recurrence, you know, to much more quickly have that kind of knowledge much more broadly disseminated and known about, right? So there's also a way to go, as it were, for government in which, yeah, you, you basically need people who know about that huge literature and who know about these relative uh, magnitudes of what's important and what you should and should not disrupt. Uh, and that should be at the table when a decision is made. Only disrupt that you know, if something else, it could be a benefit of equal magnitude, you know, the proportionality principle. How well among the leaders of these nations do you think it's known that this has been a horrible mistake, this policy, oh, broadly speaking? That's a very difficult question, Jan, because, I mean, no one likes to think of themselves as evil or having done the wrong thing. And if if you're a government leader and you, you panicked, you went along with the panic, then you gave your friends lots of contracts and you know, you're now in a group of people who has enriched themselves, you still will get, you, you'll get pats on the back daily as to what a wonderful job you've done because you're powerful, right? Uh, you've become richer and people will admire that, you know, desirable men and women will come up to you for the things that they want from you. Are you then really going to reflect and, and, and read the literature that's critical, you know it exists, but you've, you've, you've said that was propaganda? Are you really going to allow in your own mind the thought that, you know, you're actually on the wrong side of history? You've hurt your own population? I think very few politicians are psychologically capable of that. I mean, that's, you know, you either have to be such an evil bastard that you, you know that you just don't care, <laughs> right? Um, or, as it were, you know, just pathologically don't see that as your job. So I think the majority probably does not realize that, doesn't want to see it, and probably to their dying breath will maintain that they did the right thing, it was the only thing they could have done in hindsight, and, you know, we didn't know, and all that sort of stuff, you know. Think of how many repentant Nazi leaders there were, not that many, right? You know, what you're saying here, right, kind of explains a little bit of why we might be constantly feeling this threat of having the same policies imposed again to all the same ill effects against, you know, probably a much lesser version of the problem even now, mm -hmm. right? So, okay. <laughs> and, but you also have, you know, some solutions here, but this, the, let's just say at this point in our discussion, the future doesn't look good. I agree that the future, the coming three, four years, looks bleak, right? I mean, the, the food crisis is with us. And, well, harvests take time. Replanting takes time. And so we are, we are already experiencing, and we're going to get more famines, more civil wars in large parts of the war, world. I mean, not in the U.S., but, uh, you know, the U.S. is not the only country that matters in the world. Uh, we are seeing inflation. We are seeing the destruction uh, of lots of people's livelihoods. The damage to children, as we say, is still ongoing with New York. There's a kind of, there's a kind of a madness that's crept into the population, looking for other crazy things to do. Right? Let's let's let, let's start a nuclear war with Russia, for instance, or let's shut down all activity which remotely has anything to do with carbon emissions, or let's uh, let, let's flog ourselves on the back for anything an ancestor did 700 years ago, right? And and so yes, we we are as it were in a madly stampeding herd, but. Uh, I am hopeful in the longer run, right? Um, and I'm not sure we'll do the same kind of craziness again. And the reason for that is that these costs, even though politicians won't want to see them, well, they're real and people feel them. And they will start to squeal and they will squeal more and more and more, right? Uh, and, and then, as it were, a, a kind of um, 
a mechanism kicks in, which is really where a lot of the hope comes from, particularly from an economist, which is competition, right? Is that somebody somewhere figures out, well, if I don't do this as a politician or a state or a company or a country, I can do way better. You know, I don't have this damage and I attract all these sort of ambitious go-getters who can build up my economy and my country. Let's do that. And the U.S. in that sense is lucky that it's a confederation, right? And so you have all these states with their own policies, which are like little laboratories. And South Dakota was one of the small ones which went its own way and said, stuff that with all these mandates. We're not going to do that. And its neighbors saw that it did better, right? Almost the same COVID outcomes, but just not the social and economic disruption, not all that loss. And then, of course, you know, Florida uh, followed the right example. Texas followed the right example. And the Republican Party switched from being pro to anti all this stuff, right? And so within U.S., it's competitive forces who got away from this, right? You know, the good people are leaving California and going to places where you can have real life. So people vote with their feet. Businesses vote with their feet. Uh, and that breaks this, you know, because then new competitive forces come up inside politics, which is somebody's going to undermine you. Your opponent is going to say, we're not going to do this again. And then even if you say to yourself, look, we should have done this, you still start to promise as a politician, no, of course, we won't do this again. Right. So I think the damage and the magnitude of the damage, you know, is forcing a rethink upon politicians everywhere. Uh, to different degrees and different speeds. In that sense, America is leading the Western world to a large degree um, because, let's say, in places like Australia, they're, they're nowhere near this level of sort of, you know, uh, of a reckoning, right? There, we're still talking full madness in terms of uh, how wedded they are to the, to the narratives that they've done well and this was the only thing that they could possibly have done. Um, and also, I think, in the longer run, you know, that there are now all these lessons as to what we should not do uh, and the institutions that we should build to sort of avoid a recurrence of this. So the question is really only how bad is it going to get the next five to ten years as we sort of go through the trough and then the upswing again? You know, do we need a Second World War type sort of, you know, even worse catastrophe to sort of, you know, slap us into consciousness again, to let the adults return into the room, if you like, right? Um, and all that I don't know. Um, I, I used to be more positive I'm uh, and I still think it's probably a it's probably not going to be so bad particularly in the US parts of the EU I think will be worse right than the US I think the US in that sense is is on a better trajectory the competitive forces are starting to be strong in the EU they're nowhere near as strong so we're far behind because well, I, but then you have the Nordic countries which yes, you know, fall, followed Sweden right yes Basically, that's right right Scandinavia yeah. I know Scandinavia but you know, there's only something like 25 million people living there. It's right. only a small part of Europe, right? And, and the unfortunate thing about Scandinavia is that they don't want to be different from the rest of Europe. So they don't want this role of we're better, come to us, right? Mm -hmm. They sort of want to return to the fold of the rest of the European nations. So that's not what we need. We, we, we need some proud European countries who say, we're not going to do this anymore. And, you know, you've all been off of the ferries and, and this is the last time we do something like that. And in that sense, Eastern Europe is more like that. Poland is more like that. Romania is more like that. Well, but Switzerland what, is more like what that. What about the UK, though? The UK seems to have, you know, dropped most of its... It's true. The UK does. But the, the UK also has this huge medical health establishment who loves the ideas, rolling lockdowns, and they could call them in the next wave, right? So they are making all this noise about, you know, monkeypox and whatever else can come out of some sort of, you know, nook and cranny of the rest of the world. And so there's an enormous establishment there which doesn't want to let go, right? And would love in the next winter to sort of shout up and down, oh, the hospitals and tests. And so the, the UK in that sense is a little bit on the cusp. I, I don't, I'm not quite willing to say which way it'll go, right? I think among the upper echelons of the Conservative Party, um, the penny has dropped, right? And, and interestingly enough, in the most respectable of financial circles, the penny has dropped. So, you know, the Bank of England, they are now anti this stuff, right? Because they know how devastating this is for the future of Britain. You know, and they're sort of true nationalists. They don't want this, right? But of course, a large part of the rest is sort of oblivious to the, the cost that they've done. They've tried to bury this. The politicians don't want to own up to this either. So they're stuck in a hard place, right? That, that they want to say they've done the right thing. Well, if you want to say that, how are you going to prevent doing the right thing again, right? 
it's a deep problem for you as a politician, right? Uh, and so it's not clear how that's going to roll. And of course, the Labour Party in the UK is full for lockdowns. And as far as I understand, they're still, you know, oh yes, let's lock down again because that's the safe thing to do, right? And they love this idea of sort of power concentration. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be willing to call the UK at this point. It, it, I do think in the long run, it won't be, you know, it won't be as mad as the EU, but will they have another bout of madness? I don't know. Maybe. I have a, I want to ask you, you know, as we finish up, and maybe this is opening up a big can of worms, but I ha there seems to be this increasing flirtation with an interest in having all the, all the answers come from a central authority. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, some people like myself would call it authoritarian, mm -hmm. flirtation with authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, and how does this play into all these dynamics? I'm sure you've thought about this. Yes. I mean, we have seen a growth of authoritarianism and what you might just describe as fascism, you know, the growing together of corporate power with government power and the absolutism of that. We've seen a lot of that in the US too, with, of course, you know, the big tech censorship, basically doing the government's bidding, right? Uh, with big pharma, sort of a lot of insider takeover of the US institutions. Uh, but this is also true of many parts of Asia and many parts of Europe and certainly Australia. Yes, there has been authoritarianism. A large part of the population has loved it, right? Despite the damage that this has done to their own kids or to their own grandparents. Um, they like that. They like this notion of the strong men or, you know, the authority who will sort it out. And, you know, the, the sort of the, the joy of the, the stampeding herd, if you like. Um, there again, I'm hopeful in the long run, right? So whilst I see the, 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 the sort of the large degree to which we are now much more authoritarian than we were before, I, again, I'm an economist. I, I ask myself, is authoritarianism efficient? And so does it win in the long run? Because in the long run, if you're not efficient, you lose out to countries and systems, which are. People will just move there, right? I mean, it's like the story of Eastern Europe, which was Soviet, and Western Europe, uh, Western Germany, which was not, right? Uh, well, they were crawling out of the gates, you know. I mean, half of East, or, or a large part of Eastern Germany basically fled to Western Germany before the, the war was instigated by the Soviets. You know, you've got to keep them in at a certain moment, right? Because uh, they'll run away, right? And so I believe that's true still, right? That authoritarianism is deeply inefficient, and we've seen that during the COVID times, you know. We've seen the increase in government debt, the reduces in well-being out, uh, outcomes, the reduction in health and education output. It's not an efficient system. If it were, we would have copied the Soviets rather than the other way around, right? And so it's still inefficient, and so it's a matter when will competition prove it to be inefficient, and will, you know, democratic and other uh, competitive forces move it off the agenda. So I do think we will get a, a restoration of many of our freedoms and a restoration of the idea that we need competing thoughts, we need competing stories as to what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is not, and, and have a full marketplace, if you like, right? There's no one owns the truth. The truth is far too complex. We only see bits of it, right? And different people must compete for the different bits uh, so that society as a whole sort of, you know, um, learns what the, the good and the bad um, decisions were in an almost evolutionary manner, right? And for that, you need diversity, right? You need to see the space of experiments. Um, and I, so I, I do think we'll return back to that and we'll, we'll like with the American revolutions, learn the reasons for why we should appreciate this and learn, you know, we, we will once again start thinking about our institutions, I think. So in the great COVID panic, we also really put a lot of effort into thinking, well, how can we update our democracies? What should we do differently in terms of our institutions? And so two of the thoughts we had is that you can try and do something against the social contagion. It's like, it's almost like a weather system, you know, the, the sort of the emotional weather system of humanity, and it's prone to storms. Uh, storms which travel from country to country and which can blow away politics and all kinds of expertise, but well, you can try to prevent the strength of storms. You can try to batten up the hatches, right? You can try to push against these things and see it coming, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have quite detailed plans for that, but we also have quite detailed plans for as we're giving much more power in the hands of the citizenry to break the link that there now is between concentrations of wealth and sort of direct bureaucratic control of things, right? So, for instance, that we avoid the Anthony Fauci's of the world who are deeply conflicted with their various fingers in the pie, but also various sponsors which move him, right? You want to break that. Uh, and one of the suggestions we have is that for that kind of position, but really that whole layer in society, we want to use citizen juries. So we like the idea of having, let's say, 
20 Americans from all over America uh, choose, you know, who would be the head of the CDC. And they choose within two weeks and they use their own criteria. You know, nobody tells them what the criteria they are. They basically, you know, can choose how to search and they may not find the best person. That's not the point. You find an independent person who's reasonable. That is so much better than whomever else the politicians are going to come up with via the special interests that tag them that you're way, way better off. And I would also like to see this with judges. I'd like to see this with certain aspects of the media. I'd like to see this with universities. I'd like to see this with hospitals. I'd like to see that kind of system whereby we put that power on the hands of the citizenry. The citizenry should basically appoint, you know, in all different juries, one jury, one top position, basically appoint the top positions of, uh, within the bureaucratic system that we have in this country and other countries. I think that would be a good way to break that link between money and power. Well, uh, clearly a very revolutionary thought. I can just imagine the kind of pushback this uh, comment of yours is uh, eliciting right now and perhaps some of the people that might be surreptitiously watching this out of this show. Well, Paul Freitas, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to see you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Paul Freitersch and myself for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. The Epoch Times is growing quickly, and we're currently hiring an associate producer to join the Epoch TV team to work on both American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. It's a time of rampant misinformation and propaganda, and you'll be part of the solution as we bring back honest journalism. If you're interested or you know someone who might be a good fit, head over to ept.ms slash associate producer. That's ept.ms slash associate producer, all one word. We look forward to hearing from you. Mm -hmm.